clear, we're going to uh, officer nominations uh, now. And uh, there is a guidebook, a guide to officer nominations, aptly named, on the table in the lobby. Uh, you can pick one of those up. This is also going out electronically uh, to you this afternoon. So you will be getting a copy of this uh, in your email. And uh, we're not asking anybody to do any nominations today, but we are doing them all month till the end of the month, the last Sunday in the month, uh, which I think is the 30th. And um, so we are asking you this week to definitely pray about it. Uh, there is a form that you have to turn in and uh, it says that you need to talk to them before uh, anyone is nominated. Has to have two nominations, so not from relatives, and you have to be a member for at least a year. So, uh, following all that, you can read, it explains uh, most everything in there. So you can pick one of those up or read it electronically, I encourage you uh, to do that. So also, uh, we have all these empty seats because uh, Lord knows we need to pray for each other even more. We have, uh, if I'm counting correctly, seven families, eight families quarantining right now, six because uh, that somebody in their family uh, tested positive, and a couple uh, because they got exposed but haven't tested positive yet, and uh, at least one because they just don't know. Um, so there's a whole ton of people who aren't here. Hopefully you're online, hello. We pray that you would be feeling better. Uh, but please pray, that's a significant chunk of the church that is um, at home trying to get better. Um, and this is certainly has affected every group, every organization around, uh, we're all dealing with it. So uh, please uh, be praying for that. Uh, if you wanna turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, this is the fifth book of the Bible, so go all the way to the left, come back five books, they're all long books, so you get to Deuteronomy, if you get to Joshua, you've gone a little too far, if I had been uh, actually thinking clearly a couple years ago, uh, we would have done Deuteronomy last year and Joshua this year, because they go together, so we're kind of doing them backwards, because uh, I didn't plan it out that far, um, having already done Joshua, we're now doing Deuteronomy, uh, which leads up, I'm not going to read uh, all 46 verses um, this morning, um, but I am gonna read uh, verse uh, one and verses five through 11, because that gets to some of the uh, high points of the text, and I'll be reading several others uh, as we go through. So let us uh, give our attention uh, to God's word. Deuteronomy one, verse one, and then verses five through 11. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Verse five, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, the Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel and the land in between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing Old Testament story to learn more about your grace and your love. And we ask this morning to give us the grace to understand some hard teaching here. It's hard because we think we would never be as sinful as the Israelites were. And it's hard because we're forced to admit that we are. 
So give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us to consider what it takes to trust and obey your word. And as always for this, we need your grace. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, every marriage has its share of trials and troubles. Uh, but imagine going off on your honeymoon and getting victimized by six natural disasters. That's what happened to newlyweds Stefan and Erika Svenström when they left Stockholm, Sweden for their four-month honeymoon back in December of 2010. First, they got stranded in Munich, Germany when Europe was hit by one of its worst snowstorms. So they decided to change plans and go south and they went all the way to Australia. And they got there, in the city of Cairns, they were struck by one of the most ferocious cyclones in Australia's history. The couple in their 20s were forced to shelter for 24 hours on the cement floor of a shopping center with 2,500 other people. And they said uh, trees were being knocked over and big branches were scattered across the streets. We escaped by the skin of our teeth. So not being safe there, they headed south to Brisbane. But as they got there, they discovered the city was experiencing massive flooding. So they traveled all the way across the country to Perth, where they narrowly escaped raging brush fires. Next, they flew to Christchurch, New Zealand, not having had any success in Europe or Australia, and they arrived right as the city was devastated by a 6.3 magnitude earthquake. Mrs. Svenstrom said, when we got there, the whole town was a war zone. We couldn't visit the city, it was completely blocked off. So we just traveled around a little bit and decided to go to Japan. But a few days after the arrival in Japan, Tokyo was struck by the largest earthquake on record for that place. The trembling was horrible. We saw roof tiles flying off the buildings, Mr. Svenstrom said. It was like the buildings were swaying back and forth. The family finally returned to Stockholm in March of 2011 after a much calmer visit to their last destination, which was China. Now, looking back on this lengthy trip, Mrs. Svenstrom said, to say we were unlucky with the weather doesn't really cover it. It's so absurd that now we can only laugh. But Mr. Svenstrom noticed that the marriage is still going strong. He said, I know marriages have to endure some trials, but I think we've been through most of them. We certainly experienced more than our fair share of catastrophes, but the important thing is that we're together and happy. Now, for most of you uh, who are married, I'm guessing your honeymoon wasn't quite that eventful, uh, but I'm also guessing that your honeymoon didn't last four months. Uh, either. But the Svenstroms are amateurs next to the Israelites because their honeymoon lasted 40 years in the desert where most of them died. Now they didn't have to face cyclones or snowstorms, um, but they did have numerous earthquakes and all sorts of wild animals and enemies on every side. Not to mention that God would occasionally bring judgment against them. Sometimes he used poisonous snakes or lightning, and other times he just struck them dead. It was a long wait. But now they're on the edge of the promised land. And Moses makes them stop there for a year. So they're 40 years after they came out of the Exodus and crossed the Red Sea. They spent a year at Mount Sinai. And our text calls it Horeb, which is like saying, comparing Leesburg and Loudoun County. So Mount Sinai would be Leesburg, Ahorab would be Loudoun, the surrounding area. And they stopped there for a year. Then they traveled in the wilderness for 38 years. Then they came to the edge of the promised land and they stopped there for another year. And that's where we are in our text. And uh, so Moses has made them stop at the edge of the promised land and during this year, actually in a shorter uh, period of time, but during this year, he gives three long sermons. And these sermons are focused on the past, the present, and the future. And so from now until Memorial Day, 
we're going to be looking at the book of Deuteronomy. And it's 34 chapters, but we're going to go through in uh, uh, five months, so it's going to be some big sections. And it's a series of sermons by Moses just as he's about to die, giving the people of Israel a comprehensive look at how they should live now that they've received God's grace. And in the first four chapters, Moses is going to look at the past. Actually, the book of Deuteronomy starts with this story, <coughs> excuse me, of how 40 years earlier, the children of Israel had previously come to the edge of the promised land, the border of Canaan, and because of a, a report of spies concerning the inhabitants and the dangers of going in the land, they failed God. They failed to obey him, they failed to listen to him, and they failed by turning away from the promised land. And it is the great disaster that we see at the end of Exodus and pretty much all through the book of Numbers. And now Moses is telling them to remember the past. Moses is going to tell them that in order to live successfully in the present, they're going to have to remember the law. And then the vast middle of the book of Deuteronomy is a lengthy explanation of the Ten Commandments. It is the most comprehensive and complete look at what it means to live distinctly because of the grace of God. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with it. We'll find it practical. But there's a few parts that are harsh and challenging and may upset a few of us. Moses is not one to mince words or to make hard things sound easy. And then finally, at the end of the book, Deuteronomy uh, ends by looking ahead to the future. And Moses is going to tell them uh, what they're going to face, that they have to choose between life and death, and it will all depend on whether or not they believe and trust God. So in the sermon notes, there is a, a, a chart that kind of lays all this out. I was going to go through it, but in the interest of time, since we got a late start, I'm going to skip that this morning. But you can look it up. It is in the, both the sermon manuscript and in the sermon notes. Now, if we took a survey of uh, the least read book of the Bible, pretty sure Deuteronomy would win. It would finish just behind, uh, just behind um, uh, Leviticus and Numbers as probably the three least read books in the Bible. I mean, even the name sounds boring. There's actually a reason Deuteronomy is not read very much. And to understand that, we need to know the Old Testament is split into different sections. So there's three major sections, and then there's sort of one smaller uh, section. But the first section of the Bible is the first five books of the Bible, and they form a section known as the Torah, or uh, known as the Pentateuch. And these are the books of the law. And Deuteronomy is the last book of the law. It follows Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And if you had read straight through and got to the end of Numbers, you could simply skip to the end of Deuteronomy and you'd be at the same place in the story. The book of Numbers ends with these wandering Hebrew ex-slaves gathered on the banks of the Jordan River waiting to enter the Promised Land. And you arrive at Deuteronomy and you see they haven't moved from that spot. The entire book of Deuteronomy takes place in this one spot. And that's another reason Deuteronomy doesn't get read very often. It's basically all words and no action. It's comprised of three long sermons by Moses and a set of laws thrown in just for the fun of it. And most of the sermons by Moses are retelling stories and laws that we've already heard in the four previous books. Now, the book begins, These Are the Words. That's actually the title of the book in Hebrew Bible, uh, Devarim, which means words. Um, the name Deuteronomy was given uh, to us by the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And most of the Old Testament, as we have it in English, is based on the Septuagint, the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament. And uh, so that's where we get the book names and actually the book divisions uh, come from there. And uh, it's named because of one verse in Deuteronomy 17. 
verse 18, it says, When he, the future king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, literally deuteronomos, approved by the Levitical priests. Deuteronomy then means second law. Deutero means second, and nomos means law. And it's really a second copy of the law. Some might say a second giving of the law or a second retelling of the law. Either way, it's repetition. First giving of the law was back in Exodus. So if you read this book right after the first four books, at some point you realize this book isn't telling us anything all that new. I mean, a lot of people wonder, what is this book doing in the Bible anyways? More importantly, why would anyone ever do a sermon series on it? No one knows. However, one reason may be Deuteronomy, best as we can guess, is Jesus' favorite book of the Bible. Now, I know Jesus doesn't have favorites. But if he did, Deuteronomy would probably be it. Because he quotes Deuteronomy more than anything else. And the Psalms are a close second. Uh, and his life and his teachings reflect many themes that are found in Deuteronomy. Some have called it the first New Testament because it prevents, uh, presents an innovation in Israel's theology, sort of a new approach to an old law. In addition, most scholars consider this book to be the theological center of the Old Testament. It's not in the center of the Old Testament, but theologically because all the rest of the books that come after Deuteronomy, all the Old Testament books and all the New Testament books in some way, shape, or form depend on Deuteronomy. The two most foundational books for Christian theology are Genesis and Deuteronomy. Everything else builds off of those two books. And uh, so we can see that in some sense, Deuteronomy is kind of the hidden hand that works the puppet. And by understanding Deuteronomy, we're pulling back the curtain, revealing the intention and direction of this hand, which of course is the hand of God. So it helps us to better understand all the books that follow it, and even to understand the words of Jesus. So if this book is important, and it shapes we should take a closer look to see what it says, find out why Jesus liked it so much. <coughs> so, the book of Deuteronomy is essentially all-encompassing for what life in the land should look like for God's people. But it's also a farewell sermon. Moses is now roughly 120 years old. And he's about to die, which he will die at the end of the book. And for decades, he has been the mediator of God's grace. He's God's messenger to Israel. He's presented Israel's request to God. He's been their ruler, guide, judge, He's had authority unsurpassed by anyone else in Israel. And as his monumental life draws to a close, Deuteronomy is Moses' last plea to Israel to live by the light of all that God has taught them. And so he is essentially challenging a new to be different from their parents. Instead of rebelling, he tells them to obey and to do that by trusting God and his faithfulness. And it's a message that we still need to hear today because we are where they are and where they are is in between. You're following along in the outline that should be the first between. Now one of the unique things of the words of Moses, except for a little bit at the end, and at the beginning of the book, we get a, unique, a clue to its uniqueness. And the verses we read, Deuteronomy 1 and 5, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. In verse 5, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. 
So this passage sets the context for And there's two things that stand out. First, Moses undertook to explain this law. That is to expound and interpret, not simply to speak it or introduce it. In other words, you're not going to just uh, merely repeat the law and the stories of everything that happened in the wilderness. He's trying to explain the meaning of the law and the meaning for everything that's happened. It's not just a verbatim repetition. So he's going to offer a very creative elaboration and application of the law and all the stories. He's expounding. That's what preachers do. It's not simply describing. And this is actually one of the goals of all good preaching. In fact, the first book that I read is based on Moses preaching in Now it's clear that Moses is doing this. Many of these people weren't around for the first giving of the law. And more importantly, this explanation is tailor-made for the new situation that they find themselves in. And that's the second thing about this passage. They're in a new situation. Deuteronomy is the story of a people in between. It says twice in verses 1 and 5 that he spoke to them beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Now they're on the banks of the Jordan River. They're no longer wandering in the wilderness, but they have yet to enter the promised land, even though they can see it on the other side of the Jordan. And they're forced to wait in between the wilderness and the promised land. So it's a book about transitions. It's not only the story that presents a transition, Deuteronomy itself is a transitional book. It provides a bridge between the end of the Torah and the beginning of the books of history and the books of the prophets. And Deuteronomy forces both us as readers and certainly the Hebrew people to simply stop. It forces them and us to wait for them before entering the promised land in order to, uh, as we'll see, listen to a lengthy, lengthy meandering sermon by an old man that you are already used to that. So, if they're living in the land between, you have to ask why. Why are they there? And they're there to remember. That's the first thing. They're there to remember. In this long chapter, Moses picks out three episodes from their past. There's been lots. He just picks out three. And to remind them of these events, he wants them to remember what's happened and to learn from those mistakes. So remember is the key word in the first four chapters. Then chapter 5 all the way through chapter 26, the bulk of the book, the key words are love and listen. I wrote that uh, to you earlier this week. And then at the very end, the key word is choose. And, uh, okay. Extra mic? Okay. The, uh, so the key word at the end of the book is choose. But we're at the beginning of the book, so the key word is remember. And first thing, he reminds them of Mount Sinai, or as he calls it here, Horeb, which is the region around Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they experienced this awesome encounter with God as he appeared in power and glory. They received his commandments. They'd been adopted as his chosen people. They were given instructions on worship and daily life. But now the time for instruction is over. And they're specifically told it's time to move on. Starting in verse 6, God says to them, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors. Now he said this 39 years ago, after they spent that year at Mount Sinai. God's telling them to set out on this long journey to the promised land. It's not actually all that long. It's about 10 days walking. So they get to pack up all their stuff, all their belongings, their tents. They get set to leave. Everyone's excited. The kids have t-shirts. They next stop Holy Land. You know, only 10 days to go. But the problem is it's a big group of people. 
We're familiar with long lines of refugees, most recently fleeing Afghanistan, trying to make their way to a better future. This crowd is numbered in the tens of thousands. Estimates go as high as two million. Um, we're not, nobody knows exactly for sure. Um, numbers are used sort of a funny way in the Old Testament. But we know at a minimum, it's tens of thousands of people. How are they gonna be organized? Who goes first, who goes last, who camps where? Who's responsible for what? Who arranges the guards to protect the camp? Who sorts out all the problems and the disputes? What are you gonna do about all this stuff, Moses? And so Moses realizes right from the start, it's impossible for him to cope with all of that, all by himself. So starting in verse nine, he says, at that time, 39 years ago, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. And then he says, verse 12, how can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? So his solution is to appoint others to share with him. And he asks for suggestions for potential candidates, people with the right temperament and gifts. And to be honest, it's a little bit like officer nominations. There to be people who are well-respected and good listeners who make wise decisions, just like your elders. But there is an issue that's much larger than just this tremendous size of the group. Despite there being tens of thousands of people, there's one thing they do in almost unanimous fashion. And the one thing they all do the same and they all do well is to disobey. And so Moses is reminding them of their disobedience. And that's the bulk of our chapter. So they set off for the promised land. They make great progress. It's an awe-inspiring journey. Verse 19 describes going through the desert, then just as the Lord our God commanded us, we left Mount Sinai and traveled through the great and terrifying wilderness, as you yourselves remember, and headed towards the hill country of the Amorites. They approach the promised land. Moses tells them, we're at the land. This is the land God's going to give you. Take heart. Let's go in. But a group of leaders come to Moses and they suggest, let's first send some men in to spy out the land. So they pick 12 men and they send them in as spies. You can find the whole story of the Israelite spies in number 13. After a while, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, come back and they have great enthusiasm. Verse 25, they picked some of its fruit and brought it back to us and they reported, the land the Lord our God has given us is indeed a good land. The country is everything they could hope for. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. They bring a, a bunch of fruit, a huge bunch of grapes back to prove the point. And even today, the symbol of two men carrying grapes is the logo of tourism. So you can look that up. And so Moses is delighted. He's got this great report, but his joy is short-lived because then the other 10 spies show up and they completely disagree. Verse 28, where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Essentially, these 10 other spies say, yeah, the land is great, but there's lots of other people already there and they are a formidable foe. Their cities are well built and well defended. The people who live there are very tall and they're physically strong. They all look like the Incredible Hulk. Probably didn't actually say that part, but. By comparison, we felt like grasshoppers. We can't possibly overcome these people. There's no way we can capture these cities. The task is hopeless. So you can listen to the two spies or the 10 spies. And the people listen to the 10 and they end up being paralyzed by fear. And they focus on the size of the problem, the size of the population, 
the number of tribes, the strength of the cities, and they forget all the promises that God has made. They forget what God did for them in Egypt. They forget how God rescued them at the Red Sea. They forget how God met all their needs in the desert. All of that just flew out the window. And despite of everything that's happened in the past, they don't believe that God can help them now. And the reason they didn't enter the promised land wasn't because they were weak and poorly equipped. And it wasn't because they were guilty of idolatry and immorality. Well, that was to come. It's because they didn't believe that God could do what he promised to do. It was just sheer faithlessness. They simply didn't trust what God had said. And far from trusting God, they began criticizing him. Essentially saying, God doesn't like us anymore. That's why he put us in this impossible situation. And Moses argues with him. He says, no, he's the Lord your God. Look at verse 30, starting there. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and the cloud by day to show you what way you should go. And Moses is letting them know God's going to be right there with you all the way, just as he was in Egypt. But the people don't listen. Verse 32 tells us, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. The people refused to listen and they decide not to go into the promised land. And so the Lord condemns them for the next total 40 years, 39 more years, to wander around in the wilderness. The generation will die there. And it'll be the next generation that enters the land. So their journey of 10 days ends up taking almost 40 years. Well, we fast forward in the story, and now the next generation is standing on the edge of the promised land. What does losing an entire generation in the desert mean for these people? In the next chapter in Deuteronomy 2, until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. The NIV translates that as the entire generation of fighting men had perished. So all the men old enough to fight in battle had died in the wilderness. Think about what that means. Let's assume, we don't know exactly, but let's assume the fighting age was 18. Some scholars think it was 20. Nobody really knows for sure. But everyone over age 18 at the time of the Exodus has now died. After 40 years, the 18-year-olds are now 58-year-olds, and they're the oldest people in the camp. All the adults who had come out of Egypt in the Exodus died in the desert. None of them entered the Promised Land. Children under age 18 at the time of Exodus are now 40 to 58 years old. Imagine a nation where the oldest folks are just 58. They're just children when God came down at Mount Sinai. They were children when their parents turned back from Canaan. To put it in our terms, 40 years ago, I wrote this the other day, so 40 years ago was 1981. For me, that was the year after I graduated from college, the year I entered the army, and the year before I got married. You have vivid memories of 1981? A lot of you don't. Those folks who are now in their 40s and 50s, they're in this new generation, have just vague memories of Sinai, of the Exodus, of coming to Canaan the first time. The vast majority of the Israelites 
now are under the age of 40. These folks were all born in the desert. This is a young nation. It has nobody over the age of 60 except Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. Those are the only three. Now I want to make sure you understand what this means. Let me ask you, if you're under the age of 40, raise your hand. How many people? That's the majority of you under the age of 40. You would have been born in the desert. You weren't even alive when the Israelites decided it was too dangerous to go into Canaan. Now who's between 40 and 58? Any people? Oh, we got a handful of people between 40 and 58. You would have been there at Mount Sinai, but you would have been very young. When your parents decided uh, not to go into Canaan, you didn't get a vote. And now you're the older generation. Those of you over 58. Huh? I'm not asking for specific years. Okay. Be thankful that you weren't in the generation that came out of Egypt because you wouldn't be alive. You would have died in the desert. I'm in this group. 40 years ago, I was 23 years old. Thank God for the gift of life. So when Moses says back in verse 6, the Lord our God said to us, Norb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. He's talking about something that happened 40 years ago. Most of the people weren't even born yet, and the rest were too young to remember. The Israelites had experienced God's providential care when he brought them out of Egypt and led them safely through the wilderness. And they had tons and tons of evidence that it was all God at work. He guided them through all these hostile places as a pillar of fire by night and a, a cloud of glory by day. And yet the Hebrews don't trust him or believe him when he says he would take care of them when they enter the promised land. And that's what they won't do. They fail to remember the words and the works of God. Now think about this. How could they forget where they had been and what God had done? Hadn't they cried out to be delivered from Egypt? How could they have forgotten the words of Aaron on behalf of God to Pharaoh, let my people go? How could they have forgotten the plagues? How could they have forgotten the Passover? How could they have forgotten the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea? All of that is in the book of Exodus. How could they have forgotten the bitter waters made sweet, the bread from heaven, the water from the rock, the victory over the Amalekites? Well, they've forgotten because they've only heard these stories or they were very young. It's like for many of us today talking about 9-11. A lot of people weren't born or they were younger and they just know of it as history. They didn't live through it. For my generation, it was, where were you when, when JFK was shot? Every generation has some defining moment. But you get 20 years down the road and that's become history. Well, now we're 40 years down the road. You know, and not only did these people not know, actually the Israelites who lived through it forgot as well. You remember in the book of Numbers, they complained. There's Numbers 14. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we die in Egypt or even here in the wilderness. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? They let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. You think in Moses listening to all this, his supply of patience is nearing empty. And he's got to be thinking, you know, like, when are these people ever going to learn? But now we've advanced. We've come to Deuteronomy. We have a new generation of Hebrew people. And they're standing there ready to cross into the promised land. And Moses says the message to them hasn't changed. They cannot falter or waver as the previous generation did. The issue is the same. Will they trust God to do what he's promised? So for most of these people, this is their first time on the edge of the promised land. For Moses, it's the second time. Will we do, 
believe in and depend on God or not? Now that's a question for the church of all ages. When we're faced with difficult issues such as severe persecution, how will we respond? When we face adverse circumstances, we need to be reminded of God's past work that demonstrates his providential care for us. And then we need to trust him and believe in him and obey him. The events from the book of Numbers are recalled in order to challenge this new generation not to fail again. One lost generation is enough. And it's an interesting feature of Deuteronomy that these succeeding generations of Israel are treated as if they were the actors in the earlier drama. Look at verse 22. It says, Then all of you came near me. They established a covenant relationship with God with the giving of the law the first time at Mount Sinai. And Moses is saying that's explicitly said to be made with this new next generation. That's going to show up multiple times throughout the whole book. You think about it. None of us were alive when the Constitution of the United States was ratified. And yet it applies with full force to every one of us today. So God's covenant with his people. It's his covenant with that first generation who failed and died. It's his covenant with this generation that's ready to enter the promised land. And it's his covenant with our generation as we seek to be faithful to his word. God made a covenant of grace with his people before you were born and yet it is for you. And that covenant is that he will redeem sinners like us for himself through his son Jesus. And this covenant is not written on tablets of stone, but it's sealed in the blood of Christ. The covenant between God and his people is renewed in Deuteronomy because God's people had become disobedient and they've forgotten his promise for a whole generation. And so now Moses has a new generation. And he's reminding them the covenant uh, promises of God, this covenant renewal. And he tells them it's both a warning and a blessing. The warning is that every generation is held responsible for their own obedience to God. And the blessing is that every generation has new hope for God's best, regardless of the disobedience of the previous generation. So what does all this ancient history teach us? Well, there's four truths we can't forget that come out of this history of Israel. The lessons actually come to us at the very end of the chapter. And the first one is repentance is more than words. We see they try to repent at one point. They say, we have sinned against the Lord, but it rings hollow when their actions are revealed. Because repentance means to turn away from ungodly ways. No longer do we walk the path of the wicked. The fruit of repentance is a change in behavior. And these people are still filled with unbelief. They disbelieved God's threats. They exalted their own will over God's will. They didn't ask, will God permit this, but arrogantly exclaimed, we will go up and do this. So that's the first thing. Repentance has to be more than words. It's very easy to say, I'm sorry. It's very hard to change. Repentance is both. Second, false security brings defeat. These people failed to understand the covenant. In the beginning, they didn't trust God because the task was too big. Now they don't trust God uh, to some degree because they think the task is too small. And it says they trust their weapons. They don't view God as their provider and protector, and they're not ready to go up when God commanded these using the first generation as an example, but we're going to see, as we saw in the book of Joshua, this generation is going to do the exact same thing. They're only willing to go, verse 41, every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. God's already told them it's not. Contrast that attitude with David, who's the great warrior king of Israel, where he said, Psalm 20, some nations boast of their chariots and horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. False security brings defeat. Third, rebellion wears many masks. 
Sometimes rebellion is just saying no. But sometimes it wears the mask of inconsistency. Yesterday the Israelites wouldn't go up to possess the land. Today they will. Maybe not. We'll see. I don't know. They're very inconsistent. And that comes across as rebellion. Sometimes it wears the mask of stubbornness. They simply refuse to listen to Moses, refuse to listen to the message of God, refuse to obey the word of God. They're just stubborn. And we know several times uh, back in Exodus and in Numbers, Moses calls them a stubborn people. He says they're stiff-necked, phrase we don't hear much anymore. Sometimes rebellion wears the mask of arrogance. Verse 43, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. You presumed on God. Rather than finding out what God wanted, you presumed that God wants whatever you want. Well, most of us know that's not always true. Rebellion can wear many masks. Fourth, delayed obedience is disobedience. The test of obedience is the willingness to do what God requires at the time he requires it, not when it's convenient for us. There was a distraught pilot experiencing trouble landing his plane, so he radioed the control tower for instructions. And they uh, gave him instructions, and he uh, objected and said, there's a pole there. And the answer came back, you take care of the instructions, and we'll take care of the obstructions. That's good advice for the Israelites. That's good advice for us. They're allowing the obstructions to bog them down. Because of their disobedience to God, verse 45, they returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice to give ear to you. So there's four truths we can't forget. As we wait, as we listen, as we trust and obey, as we live in the land in between. Now if you think about it, the in-between is the hardest part of any journey. Living in between is a difficult place to be because it's neither an adventure nor home. The in between is the hardest part because we're asked to wait and listen and hope, not to act or even react. It demands a courageous patience, a capacity to endure the unknown. There's usually nothing that has to be done or needs to be accomplished when we're in between. But it's not a place of rest or we would just stay there. It's a place of restless anticipation. Think about one of the most common experiences traveling with children. Inevitably, nearly every family will go on vacation, go visit relatives, take a long journey. And just as inevitably, we will hear the universal question every kid asks on a long car ride. Are we there yet? How much longer? Although usually, it said like, how much longer? And you answer the question, and then three minutes later, are we there yet? The in-between, we wind up revisiting this universal childhood frustration. But here I think we're compelled to ask God the same question. Are we there yet? Think about it. Most of us, especially those of us who are older, have changed careers at one time or another, and we're well acquainted with the in-between. It isn't fun, but it's a normal part of the life of faith. It's actually a normal part of the maturing process. You had to finish elementary school, middle school, high school, college, waiting to get married, waiting to have kids, waiting to have the kids go out on their own, waiting to start a career, waiting for that promotion, waiting for that recognition, waiting for retirement. Life is full of waiting. And for that reason, many of us are living in the in-between. And as Frank mentioned earlier, the last two years have felt like living in-between. We're waiting for this to be over. We're waiting for what's to come. And we're invited in the book of Deuteronomy, to wait and to listen and to hope and to trust and obey.
God calls us to faithful dependence on him, rooted in this ancient book that looks back to remember what God has done for us and then looks forward in faith, trusting that he'll keep his promises. I believe that Deuteronomy, a book about living in the in-between then, provides us with some of the best guidance and wisest suggestions for living in the in-between now. And so over the next five months, I want us to live alongside in between two places. Let's join them and stand on the banks of the Jordan River and listen to the wisdom of an old man as we wait, as we listen, and as we hope for God's promises to be fulfilled. And while we're in between, whether in a personal life or congregational life, I invite you to ask God, are we there yet? It's a simple but honest prayer that opens our hearts to God, offers him our deepest desires, which God longs to hear. It's a prayer for learning how to trust and obey while living in between. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our need to repent of words without actions. We repent of trusting in ourselves instead of you. We repent of our arrogance and inconsistency. We repent of a delayed obedience that allows obstructions to block our view of your instructions found in your word. And so by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us, enable our love to abound more and more, enable us to wait with trust, to listen with obedience, and to hope in your promises. And we thank you that all your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Grant that we may live like people called to wait and to hope and to listen as an assembled people, and work in each of us this year, both individually and corporately, as we learn more about knowing God. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through the book of Deuteronomy, draw us ever closer to the one who loves us more than we can ask or imagine, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.